Welcome to episode 90 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Brendan Jackson. This episode, we hung out with Dan Mall. He runs the studio Super Friendly out in Philadelphia. Super awesome dude. We've been trying to catch up with him for a long time, and we're so stoked that he finally was able to make it. We hope you enjoy listening. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Design Details FM. Join our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. And if you need more sounds for your eardrums, go to spec.fm. We have five podcasts in the network, all aimed at helping designers and developers level up. Before we get into the show, huge thanks to our two sponsors that made this episode possible. First up, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way you want. Whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, whatever, Dropbox is with you throughout the entire design process and handling all the syncing, all the sharing, all the backend, all the file management stuff that you just don't want to deal with. They handle revision histories, everything. Features you just can't get on all your computers. And it works with any kind of file, so you're free to choose the tools you need for every project. When you're ready for feedback, you can send large files to anyone fast. Their uh, file previewer is incredibly robust. It's so great. And you can actually comment right in line. That way, your team has a central place to post their thoughts. And conversations can happen right alongside the work itself instead of in emails or messaging services or whatever. Dropbox gives you the freedom to work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose. And you can check them out and get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor, as always, Icon Finder. Icon Finder is the world's largest source of high-quality icons on the web. They have over 700,000 icons in all sorts of formats, and they have 20,000 icon downloads per day. So they're doing something right. People are really digging what they're doing. And if you're an icon designer, you should definitely want a piece of that. You should start submitting your icons to Icon Finder. There are icon designers, some of whom we know, who are making four dollars to $5,000 a month just selling their icons on Icon Finder. Uh, definitely worth getting in on if you're an icon designer. Uh, on top of that, you can now order customized icons tailor-made by some of the most skillful icon designers in the world, which you can also contribute to. You can make proposals for these. Uh, stock icons are sometimes not enough to build a strong visual identity, so now you can order unique tailor-made icons almost as easily as buying a stock icon through Icon Finder. Uh, you can even own the copyright if you're a client trying to buy something for your brand specifically, so if you get something that is very custom and specific, not everyone else can use it. It can be your icon. Ordering icons through Icon Finder ensures that the collaborative process between the customer and the designer, which it ensures that that process follows professional standards. Uh, it'll be more transparent, ensures the clients feel secure about working with the designers because they're kind of backed by another company. Their custom design process is divided into four major steps that really outline what the, their professional standard is. First, the client uploads a design brief, stating the topic, specifications, number of icons, and other requirements for these customized icons. Second, the designers who are interested in the project submit their offers over the next 24 hours. And then third, after that 24 hours is up, the client can select their preferred designer who will work on the project based on the offer and examples of previous work. So it's not spec work, it's just they're using previous examples of your work. So it's like a portfolio kind of bid. Finally, the designer delivers the work on or before the agreed upon deadline. So it's got all four pieces, all the major chunks of what a good working relationship with an icon designer should be, but controlled through a third-party service that can handle all the difficult parts. Uh, you can start ordering these custom icons or submitting proposals if you're an icon designer by going to iconfinder.com slash custom hyphen icon hyphen design. And as always, if you want their Icon Finder Pro service, which gives you unlimited icon downloads per month, you can always save 50% off your first month by using the code design details at checkout. Thank you once again to Icon Finder. And with that, let's get into episode 90 with Dan Mall. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Mall. I have an awesome wife, Emily, and two daughters, Siddeley and Charlotte. And I design stuff other than that. Other than your family. Other than my family. You've designed your family. I have, very specifically. I, I design <laughs> for them all the time. Actually, for, for Christmas this year, I'm working on a family crest. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research into like my ancestry and my wife's ancestry. And I'm trying to make like a family mission motto, like write a manifesto for us. Whoa. Does that include your expensive Philly oil heater? It does, yeah. And that's just a regular Philly heater. Because that's something I'd Philly. never heard of before. Yeah. Welcome to the Northeast. It's cold in the winter, and we pay a lot of money to not be cold. It's like oil, though, right? Yeah. That's crazy. So a crest for your family? Is that it? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know what it's going to be yet. <laughs> yeah. How do you even start? What are you leaning towards? Is it a surprise? Uh, it's a surprise to me. I don't even know what it is yet. 
An- Ancestry.com is where I started. I'm just reading a bunch. When a designer says working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it means I haven't started yet. <laughs> it means one day I will, I will start that. <laughs> uh, and you're getting pretty close to... I know. I, I didn't say what year, though. But you're here on the, <laughs> the West Coast. I am. Just chilling. Just chilling out. for 30 minutes. Yeah. Because you need to get some work done. Yeah. So flights. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Uh, Amtrak does that. Do you guys know Amtrak? Do you have Amtrak out here? I've ridden no. Amtrak. Do you know on the what East Amtrak Coast. is? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Amtrak started at some point like a writer's residency, and it was just to like for people who wanted to get work done. You just get on a train, you go somewhere, and then you come back. Like a quiet car. Just basically the quiet car the whole time. That's awesome. I, I think um, I think Jason Santa Maria wrote his book that way. Like he would just take random train rides like i'll go to harrisburg today or i'll go to you know some crazy place in upstate new york and then i'll come back have you done that i haven't but i was on a plane excellent behind the scenes story (laughs) (laughs) that is cool i think i may have made that up i'm not sure if that's actually true we have to but it sounds great you're confident yeah i sold it i tried to (laughs) tried to sell it so when you're not working on your family's crest what are you working on uh i run a design collaborative called super friendly I'm the only employee of Super Friendly, and I bring teams of people together on every project that we do, and every team is different, and every process is different, um, and so I have fun doing that. And uh, I play racquetball with my wife as often as I can, and I run an apprenticeship where I teach people that who want to learn design or development how to do that and get jobs doing that. You are insanely encouraging on all of your blog posts, like, email me. Get in touch. Ask me questions. When did that all start? Uh, I don't know. I guess I, I've always done that. You've um, always just wanted people to reach out. Yeah, because that's what I did. So I feel like, I don't know, I feel I feel indebted to the people that I reached out to. So I feel like the only way to pay that, it's like penance. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry for bothering everyone else. So Dude, I'm, you're known in the industry. You have to be like really harsh with people. You can't talk to new people. <laughs> if they're below a certain up, tenure. <laughs> is, that, is that better? I liked it. I All liked right. it. I'm working on it. Felt good. I got to workshop it. It made me feel, I don't know, I got to chill. Ooh. <laughs> Maybe we should jump back to there. Okay. How did you get started? Uh, I wanted to be an animator when I when I was a kid. And then it, it like sealed the deal for me when Toy Story came out. And I was like, oh, yeah, definitely want to be an animator. So like 2001? No. Before, like was that really? Yeah. Not, 90, no, maybe before that. I remember 92? distinctly the first time 94? I saw it. But 94, I think. Toy, Toy Story was 94? I think. Dude. Really? Can we get a fact check? Yeah, let's do that. I think it was 94. I'm going to bet 98. 98 right. sounds about right to me. 95. Uh, closer. <laughs> Price it. is right rules. I win, right? Uh, you didn't go over. I didn't go over. Nine, yeah, ninety-five. All right. So Toy Story came out in ninety-five, and I was like, "Yep, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be an animator." So I went to school for animation. Um, I wanted to be a three D animator, and I went to Drexel in Philadelphia, and I was awful at animation, just totally, totally terrible. Um, but I got lucky because the, the the major that I was in was called digital media, and it was half 3D animation and half like interactive. So we learned 3D Studio Max and Maya and um, Lightwave and Combustion, but we also learned Flash and Dreamweaver and HTML and Director and all that stuff too. That's a lot of words. Yeah, a lot of words that don't exist that, that don't exist anymore. I recognize a handful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe in in the history books one day you'll you'll see those words again. Uh, so I. I realized that it was actually that stuff that I was interested in, um, and I was also better at it. So I focused on that and um, got a bunch of internships in school, met a lot of really good people that led me from job to job, and here we are. And that was from cold emailing people, yeah. So reaching when, out for help, yeah. When I, so when I was in school, when I was a, a junior at Drexel, I I guess I was just like randomly looking at the the job board that the school had, and I was like, oh, this place looks really cool. And so I applied for an internship and I did an interview there and I got the job. And um, just a random place? Yeah, just a random place. It was like, oh, this is nearby. I could take the train here. You know, so I like, I didn't know their work. I didn't really know much about it. And it turned out that like it was probably the best team that I've ever worked with worked at that place. So I mean, that's where I met Jason Santa Maria, Rob Weikert, Kevin Cornell, Chris Cashdollar, April Donovan, Andy Shulman, like all these amazing, amazing people that worked there. And they were just all on the design team um, and they needed an intern. And so my first assignment was to round corners of the business cards manually. Like they got square business cards and they're like, we want all these to be round. 
I was like, all right, <laughs> I could do that. So I just rounded a bunch of business cards. And they're like, hey, you're really good at rounding business cards. <laughs> do you want to try something harder? Yeah, they're like, do you know how hard it is to round business cards? I, was, I mean, it was I worked for a tough. card printing company, and we tried to do it with like professional machinery. It was terrible. It was rough. Uh, and they're like, hey, you're really good at this. Do you want to try making CD-ROMs? I was like, sure, I could do that. So I made a bunch of CD-ROMs, and I made a bunch Working of... Working like Toast Titanium or something? Uh, I did it all in Director. All yeah, right. so it was all all lingo, and then um, that company that that I worked at, like at that time, they had some proprietary technology where they could embed Flash movies in email. Like that was the thing that was like, the claim to fame. So I made a bunch of Flash emailers, and then uh, some version of Outlook came out that killed it, and that whole business tanked. Expect Microsoft to ruin some kind of web <laughs> yeah. technology. Surprise, surprise! Yeah. Yeah. That was an agency. Yeah, it was an agency in uh, in Conshohocken, a, a, a suburb outside of Philly. And you never really left the agency world. No, kept yeah, kept going. So I was an intern there, and then I worked at another agency, which is more of like a human factors usability kind of place. But I mean, kind of similar to, to most agencies where they did client work, people hired them to to do work for them. Human factors, what? Human factors, usability, um, UXy things. Yeah, they. It was more like the turnpike would come to them and say like make it e- help us make it easier for people to pay in the in toll booths and so we would do a bunch of usability research we do a bunch of like studies so um, like what you should be yeah yeah okay, exactly cool I, I remember making um a pharmaceutical company came one day and they wanted us to make something that made it easier for doctors to transfer information from their notepads into like a database. And so we came up with this idea that maybe there was a, a computer that you could hold in your hands and uh, and you could touch it and input with touch. Um, so we built flash prototypes that we put on a tablet and we were like, yeah, this is, this is cool. We, you could make this. And we were like, it's going to be a million dollars each. And they were like, we will, we will never do that. And what like, year okay. was this? 2004, I think. And when the yeah. iPad came out, you were like... Like, see? See? I told you. I knew it. For only good a- thing they're not a million dollars each. I know. It's a good starting point. But mine ran Flash. <laughs> you- <laughs> that was... He hangs his head in that shame. That was excellent. <laughs> I like the response. It's a great one. I'm just giving you shit. I'm a little, I'm a little bitter about that. So what happened next? Um... I really wanted, so I really wanted to work at the place that I interned at, and I was begging them to give me a job. They didn't. They were like, "Yeah, we're fully staffed up." But then everybody left, like the day after. I asked them, like, <laughs> the whole the whole design team quit. They were protecting you. Yeah. Do you still want to come here? And then they were like, "Do you want to work here?" I was like, "No, absolutely not." <laughs> nope. So I got a job at at another place. Um, this is when web standards was like sort of coming out and like being more popular. Everybody was build, still building stuff with tables, and uh, CSS was sort of like a new thing. It wasn't really that supported, although it kind of worked. And I remember working on a project for Comcast. We were building a, a dashboard for Comcast, and I was I was an intern there. And the lead developer got the design from the designer, and she was like, oh, this can't be built in CSS. And I was like, mm, I don't know about that. But I didn't, I didn't say anything to her. But she was like, no, it absolutely can't be built. CSS is not for this. And I, I remember going to the designer, and I was like, Hey, I'm pretty sure we could build this in CSS. And he's like, "Are you like seriously? You you think you could do it?" I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "How how much time do you need?" I was like, "If you give me a week, I could build it in CSS." And he's like, "Okay, great." So we did this kind of secret project where we built it in CSS, and um, and I think she got fired. I think the developer got fired, which I feel awful about. Um, Dan malicious, <laughs> on point. Yeah, <laughs> it starts. It starts. <laughs> and so it well, begins. Yeah, well played. Uh, I think she got fired. And, uh, and that designer, um, he was asked to start a web-specific division of that company. So they're like, we want to do, like, we want to ha- spin off a new division, just do websites. Can you be the guy that runs that? And he was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, and he is the one. And so when he started that, he was like, hey, I'm going to start this web-specific division of the company. Do you want to come and work with me on this thing? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, and that was, so that, that, that designer was Greg Hoy. Um, and <laughs> oh, no big deal. No big deal. Yeah, MBD. <laughs> Uh, and so we started, we started this web specific division of the company and he was like, do you know anybody else in Philly that would be, that would want to work here? And I was like, well, my friends, Jason Marie and Rob Weikert, we used to work together at this agency. They're like freelancing now. Maybe you could talk to them. So he talked to them and he worked out a deal with them that he was like, you can come into the office every day. You can you have a desk for free, um, work with us part-time, like work two days a week. So they worked two days a week with us. And, uh, and then and I worked full-time there, well, I, as full-time as I could while I was in school. 
Um, and then I got enough work there that I quit school, so I never finished school. I have nine credits left to graduate college. Um, I don't have a, a college degree. My mom... Good call. It's not, Excellent call. It's not a fan of that. She, she's like, every day, she's like, can you, just get, can you just get your degree, please, for me? And I'm like, mom, I like... I'm busy cogging. It, <laughs> Before we get into the, the cog, can explain what that tipping point was where you realized you know what, I'm ready to drop out of school. I'm this close, but I'm ready to quit. Uh, I, it was mostly senioritis. Like I was a senior. I skipped all of my, my gen eds because I was like, ah, I don't want to take this class. I want to take animation. So I did, all, I, I did that. So I had like psych 101, sociology 101, and anthropology 101 left. And I was like, ah, like I don't want to go to these classes and I'm in college so that I can get a job, but I already have a job. So why would I continue to go to college? Because I have the job. And so I was just like, I have the job, but I don't, like problem solved mission accomplished so i just stayed i stayed at the job and i was like i'm just not going to go to these classes and so i didn't so i walked in a graduation ceremony my mom has pictures uh, how did I they have, let you walk i don't know i'm not sure you snuck in kind of i think so they were like here you go here's your gown like like and and they you know they give out fake diplomas at, yep. the, at the cell like you know i have my blank piece of paper i just never got a real diploma <laughs> <laughs> but i walked you know i got the pictures to prove it would you ever finish your degree only for my mom. Yeah. Only because she's like, can you, like, can you just do this for me? I'm like, yeah, all right. So if she, was, if she really wanted me to do it, I would do it. I feel like the older you get, the more painful it would ever be to go back to that. I mean, I don't even know if my credits would qualify anymore. Like I uh, yeah. I'm, might be back to zero already. So I'm, I'm, technically, I'm a high school grad. Wow. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Dropped out of college. Dropped out of college. And you are working on this web division yep what next uh so you went back to tables back to tables yeah because everybody knew the css was just they're, a just, fad. they're just more stable obviously yep. yep tables are for layout and um we all were freelancing with jeffrey zeldman at the time so i think jason had worked with with jeffrey uh, on a couple of projects and jeffrey had this one project for the the kansas city chiefs and it was the cheerleader section of the Kansas City Chiefs website. So he, he, he built the whole site in web standards, HTML and CSS. And the cheerleaders page was built in Flash. So he was like, he asked Jason, do you know anybody that, that does Flash work and, but can do it in a way that's accessible and semantic? And Jason's like, actually, yeah, I know, you know this kid who was who interned with us. So I freelance with Jeffrey on that. Um, and I built the cheerleaders page of the of the Kansas City website in Flash, and so I, I did a bunch of freelance work with Jeffrey too, and a, and a bunch of us that were working at that web specific division, we we were freelancing with Jeffrey, and he's like a team apart. Yeah, he's basically like like you guys could run a business off of the stuff that I turn away. Like, do you want to do that? And we're like, that sounds pretty cool. And so that's how Happy Cog Philly got started. Crazy. What was it like working with Zeldman? I don't work with him a lot, other than the freelance stuff. Um, I, I worked with him more on a list apart because uh, I was a technical editor for a list apart for a couple years. And the thing that I love most about working with Jeffrey is that like he is, I feel like he's such a good creative director. One of the things that I picked up from him that I try to do all the time, and maybe this is, this goes back to the encouragement thing is that he always encourages people. Like that's always the first thing out of his mouth. Like you might, you write an article or you tech edit something or you send an email and he goes, thank you so much for doing that like your contribution was so valuable. We couldn't have done this without you. And it feels really genuine. It doesn't feel like he's blowing smoke. And I feel like as a creative director, that is a big part of what makes him get good work out of people. So I learned that from him because, and, and he would do this on Basecamp. Like it wasn't even a personal thing. It was just, he would write messages publicly in front of everyone, thanking everyone for their contribution and just really like building them up. So that's, uh, I think that's like one of my favorite qualities about Jeffrey. Did that carry forward into happy cog and what, what you went on to do from there? I don't know. I think Jeffrey is very, Jeffrey's warmer than I am. I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit more cold than he is. I think he's like, you're like Dustin Sinozing right now. Like Dustin Sinos thinks he's aggro and you think you're cold. Like, I, th I think so. I mean, he I, must be very, very warm. He is. I mean, that's, that's, he's like, he's such a, like a teddy bear, you know, and he's, he's great and he's really encouraging. And I don't give out encouragement as much as he does. Um, I feel like encouragement should be earned. Um, but I also try to create opportunities for people to earn that encouragement. I don't know. It's kind of this. It's, I think it's a little bit weird now that I say it out loud. Thanks for making me do this. I got you. So you started Happy Cog. Philadelphia. Philly. 
I would say I started it. I mean, Greg Hoy started it. Um, I was one of the original people that sure worked there. Yeah. OG Happy Cock. OG Happy Cock. That's right. OG Happy Cock Philly. And how long were you there? Uh, I think it was like four or five years. Okay. Um, and then after that, my wife and I got, or she's my girlfriend at the time, we got married and we had both lived in Philly for a long time and we were just like, let's go do something new. Let's go have an adventure together. Um, and we, th- we thought, thought about where we want to move. I did a bunch of San Francisco interviews and a bunch of New York agency interviews and we ended up uh, moving to New York. Um, I got a job at an agency called Big Spaceship. So I worked there for a couple of years, um, ran the design team there. Um, met a lot of really good people, did some, did good work. And, uh, and then when we had kids, we decided to move back to Philly because my wife's parents and my parents live like 10 minutes away f- from each other. So that's really hard to pass up like free babysitting grandparents that want to <laughs> be around their grandkid, um, you know, tiny Brooklyn apartments versus, you know, Philly. So, and it's also cause you love your parents, of course, you know, if they're listening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That. Can you edit that back in? <laughs> he said he'd go back to college for his mom, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, didn't we cover this already? <laughs> um, he loves her nine credits worth. Well, I mean, not yet, but in theory, I do. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what counts. <laughs> the, it's the intention, right? So you worked for all these places, and then at some point, it occurred to you to start your own. Yeah. What was that? Um, what happened? It was mostly having kids and realizing that I wanted to stay home with them and stay home with my wife as much as I could. So I thought it would be pretty rude of me to ask an agency, like, I know all of you work in the office, but could I just work from home instead? Like, could I just be the, the one outlier? Um, and so uh, moving back to Philly, you know, Philly is a small design town. And so I knew a lot of designers there. I knew a lot of agencies there. There wasn't any that I was like keen on working for. So I was like, well, there's a good opportunity as, as any. And I started super friendly then. And why is super friendly? So at the beginning, you mentioned it's a collective and sort of how it works. But how did that come to be where you set it up in a way that not many agencies really set themselves up? Uh, so when I, I, I knew that I was going to start my own business at some point. Um, and this was like toward my, the tail end of being a big spaceship. So about a year before my wife and I decided to have kids, we decided that, that it, when we had kids, that it would be good for me to have my own business already at that point. So for the, for, I guess a year before I quit, I worked two full-time jobs. I like work at big spaceship. I'd come home, we'd eat dinner together. And then I'd freelance. Like I just worked, just burn the candle at both ends. And I did that because I had zero risk because I had a good full-time job. I was getting paid well. So I can kind of do whatever I want on the freelance stuff. So I experimented, like I, pro- I, I call it, I prototype my business. I like prototyped everything that I could. I like prototype what could be in a contract, what clients will pay. I tried hourly rates. I tried uh, fixed rates. I tried like diff- pricing different ways. I tried like all these crazy things because I didn't care if a client said no. Because if they said no, I'd be like, that's like, I don't need the money. I don't need the portfolio piece. I don't need any of those things. So I had like basically ultimate freedom because I had, I could take all the risks that I want. So I did that for a year and I figured out like what worked in a business and what worked for me. And and one of the things that I found was when I was working at at all the agencies that I worked at, um, sometimes I would, I would want a specific kind of person for a project. And so when when I was at Big Spaceship, I was the Big Spaceship is team or was team based at the time. So we had interdisciplinary teams and it was basically like no specialist at at anything. Everyone was a generalist. So one project we would get at like an iOS app, like, okay, we got to build an iOS app. The next project we'd have to build like a, a CMS and PHP. The next project we'd have to do something with WebGL. And so every technologist was just expected to like learn and pick up something new. Same thing with the designers. Like if you didn't know 3D, this is the project you're going to learn 3D. If you didn't know animation, this is the project where you're going to learn animation. So, I mean, that was really cool because the culture there was like, cool, I don't know a thing at the beginning of a project. By the end of the project, I will know how to do it and I'll be really good at it. But there were times where I would, I would be like, you know, like this person is really great at picking up things, but I would kill for like a MySQL database expert on this one. And what I realized was I actually know a lot of those people. Like when I'm like, ah, oh, if only I had an information architect that has 20 years of experience teaching kids. Like, oh, yeah, that's Kevin. I could just give Kevin a call. Or like, oh, if only I had a, a copywriter friend who used to be a midwife. I'm like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, that's Jenna. Like, I'll just call her. Like, so I, I was 
it occurred to me that I could assemble the teams like that I wanted to because I know the people who would be the, the dream team on that. And every project has its own dream team. So I experimented with that and I, I got a, a lot of really good success with that. And clients tended to want to pay more for that because they would get an expert rather than like, I just found some guy who could do the work. Um, and so it became part of the business model. And then I realized that it helps me to keep my overhead down because I don't have to have full-time employees, which scares me to death. Like, that's why I don't have it now. Um, and uh, and that, so the business model kind of evolved from there. What were some of the things that you learned while freelancing, doing this like prototype, uh, iterating through your process, essentially? What were things that you learned and mistakes you made that you could help people listening totally avoid? Um, okay, so... I know you guys asked for plugs at the end of the show, but can I plug something now? Absolutely. All right. So I wrote a book. It's coming out soon, um, probably in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Uh, and it's about pricing. Um, and it's, it's pricing for agencies and for freelancers. So it's all spec work. <laughs> right, every, right. Do everything for exposure. Exposure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, there'll be more work where this comes from. Yeah, totally. Um, what I learned mostly is that people will pay for things that they think are valuable. So I had this one, this one guy who came to me, who, like, I, I remember it was May and he wanted to book me. I was booked for six months and I was like, well, the, the soonest availability I have is like November. And he's like, okay, what will it take to book you for November? And I was like, ah, I don't want to be booked for six months out. Cause like, what if, what if like October comes and the guy flakes out and I turned away all these things and I just, I don't know, I just don't want to be booked that far out. So I gave him the, like the blow off price, like, all right, like it's going to be an extra $7,000. And that's not a deposit. That's like an additional fee, an additional non-refundable fee. And I called it the save the date. And I was like, this guy's totally going to go away. Like, there's no way he's going to pay that. He never replied. to Like, I sent this over email. He never replied to me over email. A couple of days later, I get a check in the mail for $7,000. And I was like, oh, like, I don't, I can't calculate the hourly rate on that because it would be astronomical. I can't, I can't quantify that. I can't put that in a spreadsheet. The only thing that I could learn from that, I think, was that, if when people want something bad enough, they will pay for it. And like they will defy logic and reason and all that kind of stuff, all that like all the judgment that they would have just to get the thing that they want. Um, and, and so that's the way that I price projects now is like if I can be that valuable to them, I can charge a lot because it's something that like I don't have to say oh, it's 150 bucks an hour, like just because that's what everybody else does. I could say, well, it's going to be, you know, $100,000 and take it or leave it. And the more ability I have to walk away, the more leverage I have in, the, in that. And then if they do accept that, then it's on me to do a really good job for them. And I find that the clients that pay the most, I work my butt off for them. Like, I, I'm not like, oh, cool, I swindled them, I got them. Like, I do so much extra for them because they believed in me, I want to believe in them and their product. I feel like it, it makes for a good relationship. How do you feel about working for free? Um, fine. Did so, you ever do it? I do it all the time. Still, still, I, I have. I feel like I have two pricing models. One is full price, and the other one is free. It's very difficult for me to do something in between. Like I don't do discounted rates. I'm not like, well, full price minus twenty percent, because I feel like I will give it that effort in my mind. Like, well, I'll do full work minus twenty twenty percent of my enthusiasm. So if I'm doing a project f for a friend. Like I won't charge them. I'll just say, look, let me do it on my own time. Let me do it like the way that I want to do it, and I'll do it no charge, um, or pay pay my full rate because um, I feel like it. I don't know how to do those projects in the middle. And is that did you carry that same model forward into your agency? Yeah, with how you price clients. Okay. Yep. So all of Super Friendly's clients are priced on value. It's called value based pricing. And um, what what does that mean? So what priced on value? Does that just mean like what it costs you or like what you think it's worth? It's what they think it's worth and what return I can get for them. Okay. So like uh, the most obvious example of that is if I build an e-commerce site for somebody and they're going to get, they're going to make a million dollars off of it. I could charge a fraction of a million dollars. I could charge them $500,000, but if they're only going to make a hundred thousand dollars off of it, it's unreasonable for me to ask for 500,000. So the, the, the premise is the more value I can create for them, the more value I can capture back from that. And then, and that like that scales infinitely. The, like if I can create, if I can make them millions and millions and millions of dollars, then I can take millions and millions and millions of dollars. If I don't, then I won't. Um, and so that's, that's like the theory in a nutshell. You should read my book. Um, plug, plug. Uh, but that's the, that's kind of the idea of it. That's an incredible amount of upfront confidence though, on your ability to deliver that value. That's right. How did you get there? Um, did you have times where you under delivered? And like, yeah, 
I give money back. Really? Yeah. So I, I had a, a friend. So this is like one of the learning experiences. I had a friend who hired me to do a site for him. And I just totally botched it. Like late on every deliverable. He wasn't happy with the work. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just, I didn't put my effort into it properly. And I just told him like, look, don't, don't even, don't pay the second payment. Like he paid me half up front and he's going to pay me the other half. And I was like, just keep, keep the last half. And then I finished the work and I just gave him back the, the rest of the money. Cause I was like, I wasn't, I didn't feel good about it. And he said he felt good. He's like, this is what I wanted. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't do it on time. And I didn't do it like in the way that you wanted. And it took a long time to get here. I just don't feel like you got the value out of it. And I didn't put, I didn't put it into it. So I feel like if I'm going to charge clients a lot of money for doing a lot, doing a really good job for them, I should also give back money when I don't do a good job. As someone who's employs himself and pays himself, do you price based on what you need to survive? Or do you, is that abstracted out? Like I'm going to charge $500,000 for this project, even though I know, you know, that's going to last me years. Is is that how you approach it? Or do you say, I need to make this much money to survive for the next month. I'm going to charge that. So I have that cost. I know what that cost is. So super friendly to run, super friendly costs $22,000 a month. So if I'm making less than $22,000 a month, I will go like I might as well go get another job somewhere else. Um, and that $22,000 a month is everything from my payroll to healthcare costs to the bills that I pay to whatever base camp accounts and Dropbox accounts and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I try not to let that factor into the way that I price. So the the thing that you're talking about in um, it's called cost plus, right? Where like you figure out what your costs are and then you build a little bit of a buffer on top of that that ensures your profit, right? If, if you need $10,000 a month to survive, you don't charge $10,000, right? You charge $12,000 or you make a little buffer. Like um, my, my CPA says that his, his eight-year-old daughter knows how to charge more for lemonade than the cost of supplies, right? Anybody knows how to do that. But that has nothing to do, that has everything to do with me and has nothing to do with my client. So what am I actually doing for my client? What do they get out of it? And then what I need to do or what I can do is I can match that up to my cost. So am I only going to make $30,000 for them on this, on this project or the equivalent of that in, you know, in time, spent, time saved or efficiencies or whatever it is? Well, th- th- at that point, it's not worth it for me to do the project if I'm only going to make $8,000 on it and maybe I need to hire somebody and that money, like I will lose money on that project. So the amount of value that I could create for that client is not equal to how costly I am. So I, I either need to turn that down or I need to figure out a way to drive my cost down. So I think the, the mistake that a lot of people make is that they think that cost drives price, but it's actually that value drives cost. So sorry, if, if, am I getting too deep into like this economic is, oh, this theory? Is awesome. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I could nerd out about this stuff forever. So great, you wrote a book just, about it. So <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Did you know I wrote a book? about Literally this? wrote a book. I did. About yeah. it. <laughs> um, you wrote the book on it. Wow, well, we call that? I mean, it's not out yet. So okay. I hope it will be the book. The on book. Um, so yeah. So like the the idea is you figure out what the value is going to be, and then you drive your cost down. And that's part of why I have the business model that I have is that a lot of agencies don't, they can't do that because they have fixed costs and they can't drive those costs down without say firing an employee or like getting lower rent office space or something like that. Because like my model is flexible where if I have a certain amount of value, like maybe I can't hire the $100,000 creative director. Maybe I can only hire the $50,000 creative director or the $25,000 creative director. So the quality is, is like a, a lever in that in the machine or it's like it's a dial that I can dial up and down for for all this stuff so once I figure out what the value is I can work backwards from there and say well what co- how do I need to drive my cost down in, edder, in order to be profitable on this project if cost is fixed quality can be a variable yes exactly yeah. so like I, I do have the, that fixed cost in that you know that twenty two thousand dollars a month but I could do things and, and be like well, I'm not I'm gonna cancel that Dropbox for business account, or I'm going to cancel that Basecamp account, or I'm going to, you know, like do something else to, to get those costs down. I'm going to pay myself less, right? That's another way to do it. That's a thing that owners do all the time to get their costs down is they take pay cuts or they defer their paychecks. Um, so all of those things are ways to get costs down. I have the business model that I have because I think it gives me many more things that, that, that can help me drive my costs down. Was there ever a time where super friendly was not smooth sailing ready to make it like you know you've got this every day <laughs> i never know that i've got this really yeah i mean it's like that's something we hear all the time from agencies even like yeah. t and lax we're like holy shit these guys are on a pedestal and they're like no it's pretty hard i mean I, I always thought that when you start an agency you like you figure it out right you figure out 
the rhythm and you the figure formula, out. It, yeah, it's you, so logical, right? Exactly. You get the formula. You start the agency and then like the agency bureau somewhere, so, like the government sends you like, here's how you start a business. And you're <laughs> well like, done. Oh, now I get it. Like, <laughs> I'm an agent. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm an agent. Yeah. Um, and that's not the case at all. I think what, I, what I've learned is, is just to be comfortable with the uncomfortability of it, right? Like, like I know right now I have no projects. Like I think I was, I was telling you earlier that I have a light end of the year. Um, I don't know what's coming next. I have 15 proposals out and I just have a feeling that one of those is going to land, but I have no guarantees that, that it's going to land. Um, and I'm it's, okay it's with that. It's not a statistically driven business. It's, it's a lot of feel, right? right? Exactly. And, and to be fair, some of it goes in cycles depending on the client. So like I do work with higher ed clients and they have... Um, Calendar, academic calendar years that their work generally falls in. So I know like right before the, uh, a semester starts in September, a lot of people reach out for work for higher ed around like March or, or April to, to gear up to that next calendar year. So I can expect some higher ed inquiries to come in around then. And same thing with like startups, same thing with, with financial institutions, like because of their fiscal years, you can kind of predict. Um, I know that every year that I've run Super Friendly, which is the, the last three years, July and August, no work. So I go on vacation those months. I just like save up my money so that those months I'm like, I'm cool. I don't need to do any work. I don't need to sit around. I don't need to read proposals or write proposals. I can just go and lounge on a beach. And then I come back. Like, I think I can set a, a, a calendar invitation October 15 and watch leads pour in on October 15. Damn, you've got it down to science. But it's not so guaranteed. That's, right? that's like, why you're in Hawaii with us until October 12th. That's right. Got it. <laughs> that's <Okay. laughs> yes, that's why I was hanging out there. And did that happen? October 15th? October 15th, yeah. Now, there's no guarantee that any of those leads will close, but sure. I watched, but like I got three inquiries that day, which is like, that's cool. That's pretty good. At what point did you decide to bring an apprentice into the picture? Actually, before Super Friendly started. So it, it happened accidentally. Um, when we moved back to Philly, we moved to we moved into an old church, and it was like a like a, fi- a fixer upper, and it was like a an old community church where a bunch of people were meeting there until they got like a proper church building down the down the street. So this was turned into a house. The lady who had the house before just kept it in bad shape. My parents bought it at some point, um, and they ran a personal care home out of it for for a while. My my, my grandparents lived with us growing up, so when, as I got older. My, my parent, my dad, who's a CPA, my mom, who's a nurse, they're like, we could run this business. So they ran that business just so my grandparents could live there. And then after my grandparents passed away, that was around like 2006 to 2009. Um, that's when like the housing market sucked. So they couldn't sell that property. So they have this like old church, nine bedrooms, pretty run down. And so my dad just kind of hung on to the property. And when we told him that we were going to think about moving back to Philly, he was like, if you just want to take over the mortgage, you can do that. Like, you can, I'll just give it to you. Um, you know, you guys got to fix up the house and make it what you want it to be, but you can, you can have it. So we took over the mortgage. It was pretty run down. And uh, my brother-in-law, he, he's just kind of like a, like every year he has a new job, right? So like one year he fixes pools, one year he works at a radio station, one year he works at a convenience store. Like, and he, he came to me and he said, I'm tired of having these like one year jobs. I will renovate your house for you. Cause he knows that was one of his, a couple of his one year jobs was to be a general contractor. I will renovate your house for you. If you teach me how to be a web developer. I was like, deal. <laughs> so he renovated the house. We moved in. He did nine months with me. And now he's a, a lead developer at an agency in Philly. So he was the first apprentice. I'm like speechless. That was really cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, I don't know. He had such motivation for wanting to do it. So he worked so hard. Like he lived with his parents. He wanted to get his own place. He had a girlfriend that he wanted to propose to. He did that. Like he wanted to get married. He wanted to get a house. Ha- last year he just bought a house. Um, he has a dog. He got married. They went to Jamaica on their honeymoon. Like he's like, he has the life that he wants because he worked really hard for nine months. And, uh, and that's what I love about the apprenticeship stuff is that like code and design is not difficult. Like it, it takes a long time to master. It. And I think like everyone who does it is still like working to master that. Mm-hmm. But to learn the basics, like it, it's like a day. You know, it's a lot harder without someone to guide you. So I feel like apprenticeship works a lot better than trying to do it on your own. Yes. I mean, I think, I think the the first day, like the first day of a design apprentice is here's how let's open Photoshop or let's open sketch. Here's let's talk about what these things are. These are called toolbars. This is called the properties inspector. This is, these are your tools. This one's called the direct selection tool. This is what that does. It's like we go through every single one. It's from scratch. And same thing with the, the developer apprenticeship. It's like, here's how you write 
your first line of HTML. This is an angle bracket. This, the words inside is called a tag. It has to close this way. Like, it's it's from scratch. But what I love, especially in the, the developer apprenticeship, is the first day I asked them, like, I, I I open a web page and I view source, and I'm like, what do you see here? And they're like, I don't know. It's like this is this is foreign. Like, I don't even understand what's here. I just see like a bunch of characters and symbols. And then three hours later, I do the same thing. I open a page, view source. What do you see here? Oh, I see a. A form tag, I see a HTML tag, I see a head tag, I see a meta tag, I see a name attribute, I see this thing in quotes, I see this value. Like in, in four hours, you've learned a new language. And I feel like that idea is something that a lot of people don't have. Like they don't have the opportunity to be able to create something from nothing. And I think that's what we, we do like every day for a living. Like we sit in front of blank canvases and like ones and zeros and we make things. And I feel like that especially in in inner cities and in like underprivileged areas that is like a like people don't get that and so that i mean that's partly why i wanted why i i like running the apprenticeship is i get to do that i get to work with people that think their their only goal in life or their only outcome in life is to be a manager at mcdonald's you know and make whatever $22,000 a year and like that's the best they could do cuz they can't go to college or they can't do anything else and instead you know go get a job at a startup and make you know entry level $50,000 go move to whatever city you want to go to like that like we have the ability to give that gift to people really really easily just by having them like hang out next to our desks so i have people hang out next to my desk for 9 months and uh, you know and then at the end of that 9 months i help them get a job how many times have you done that 7 How's your approach changed over those seven? Do you have it down? Master have you, Yodan. Have you, <laughs> woo, have you iterated on, on that process as well? Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't conceive of, of how I could do more than one apprentice at a time. And what I discovered in having five at a time, like just kind of accidentally, I had like five of them at the same time. What I found was that the ones, and it's so obvious when you think about it, but I just, it just never occurred to me. The ones that were farther along teach the ones that are not. And I was like, oh. I'm on a phone call. I can't help you with this problem right now. And then one of the other parents is like, oh, I got it. Don't worry. I'm like, right. Like, they could help each other. And that's way better than me doing that. So it has like... Efficiency it, of scale. Yeah. And so I'm, now I'm thinking about, okay, well, what does it look like instead of doing five to do 50 at a time or do, do 500 at a time? Like, what would that actually look like? Could you do that? Uh, I'm going to. I'm going to try, I should say. When does that start? Um, probably in the next three or four years. Like I, so, my I my, like the specifics. <laughs> well, well, in the done. next decade. You're right, right. <laughs> the next part of my lifetime. Um, I think my next job is going to be running the apprenticeship full time, and I'm really excited about that idea. Uh, I just want to see if I can do it. And the reason that I have that time frame around it is I, I've got young kids. I've got a four year old and a two year old, and I think in you know in five years they're going to be nine and seven, and they're going to be in what, third grade and first grade or something like that. And they're going to be in whatever they're in, ballet or soccer, or they're going to have stuff to do. And my wife's going to have stuff to do and I'm going to be all alone. And so I can, I can live a startup life. Like I want to do this like a startup. I want to see if I could do this at scale. Um, it might not work, but, but it also might. And I want to try it. It's crazy to me that you're thinking in a five-year scale when you said you like don't even plan workout on a, on a monthly <laughs> scale. How does that happen? I guess because I can't, plan work. Like I can't guarantee that someone's going to hire me, but I can control the things that I do. So at least I can plan for that. Um, like I, I know that I know that I could recruit. I know that I can put up a website that says, hey, if you want to be an apprentice, sign up here. Like I know I have friends that will spread the word about that. Like that, those are things that are that are under my control. And as a designer, like I can design those experiences. Like that's literally my job is to be able to, to, to do the design thinking and design work to be able to get that. What I can't design is for someone to write me a check. I if wish only, I could. If only, we <laughs> if only. I'm working on that too, but I haven't quite cracked that one. Let us know. Uh, you probably won't. <laughs> I mean, it, just make your checks prettier and it'll work out. It'll be fine. That's it. Graphic design. Well, it just reminds me so much of what Bryn wrote about in that mentorship post. Yes. Which you helped with. Which you helped with. This one-to-many relationship. Like, it doesn't have to be this one-on-one. The the day I had the idea for it, I talked through it with you, and it was very helpful. Yeah, but all I helped with, I was like, that's a cool idea. You should write that. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Yeah. Go... Do it. it. It's, it's like that. That's, <laughs> hey, all, that's, honestly, how, I, that's how I work with Honestly, sometimes the, that's enough. That's sometimes enough. That's true. At the very least, that's like rubber ducky. Yes. Like, 
right? Like yes. bouncing your ideas off someone and like be like, I don't sound like an idiot. Cool. I'll go write that. Yep. At one of the agencies I worked at, uh, one of my friends, he would pass out rubber ducks to everybody who, who was new. And he would put the rubber duck on their desk and he would say, this is what it's here for. And he would teach everybody about rubber ducking. And like, so everyone at the agency had a rubber duck on their desk to remind them, like, you can always come over to my desk and rubber duck with me. Like anytime you can interrupt me, no matter what I'm doing, just come over to my desk. So I, I, I do the same thing with my apprentices now because it's just a reminder that like sometimes you just need to talk stuff out. And all I can say is like, yep, cool, do that. And they're like, great, got it. How does one become your apprentice? Just email me. Seriously? Yeah. Anyone can email you. Yeah. And you do it remotely over email or they have to be with you? They have to be with me. I haven't figured out how to do it remotely. Okay. Um, I, I am working on that. But I don't, I, I, so much depends on being in the same room as me and, or being in the same room. And so the way this scales is I want to franchise this like so that I'm not the only one who, who does it. Like anybody could do this. And so I could, what I could do is I could put together the rubric for it and then I could just pass that to anybody who wants to do it and say, here's how you do a nine month apprenticeship. Here's roughly what you would, what you would do in month one versus month five. Here's roughly the kind of assignments that, that go with, with each of these things. And, um, and I feel like it scales that way. How do you qualify people for that? You can hand people a rubric, but if they don't understand the rubric or if they don't know what the, the individual components break down to. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, so this is the way that, that I used to work with my junior designers and designers like when I was, at, when I was working at other agencies. Is I would take them all to lunch. I, would, I did a thing called Monthly Lunchly where every month I would take each designer to lunch and we would just talk over fries or you know, whatever because I feel like that's where stuff really comes out. Like in, in the lunch office. Fries. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, you know, I've had the best conversations with my designers over burgers like way better than I've had like sitting in a conference room somewhere and doing a performance review. So I'd just take them all out to lunch. I'd buy lunch and, um, and just like talk to them about what's going on. And sometimes they talk about stuff that's like not work related, which is totally fine. Sometimes they're like, Hey, I'm having trouble with this person or this project or you, you know, <laughs> and we hash that out. Um, and so I do the same thing with potential apprentices. Like I have lunch with them and I just try to understand what their motivations are. Um, so right now, the only, the only way that I, I figured out how to qualify it is there's like a sweet spot for motivation where if they're too motivated, if they're too hungry for it, it actually becomes like dangerous because they really need it so much. So like as an example, um, I, had, I had an apprentice who ultimately didn't, didn't finish, but he was a heroin addict. And like one of the things that he was, he was looking for the apprenticeship for was like, I need a purpose. Like I, otherwise, I'm just going to continue to do heroin. Um, and it was too much pressure on the apprenticeship for him. And, and also a lot of pressure on the apprenticeship for me. Like, and, and it's one of the things that made me realize, like, I can't just be a designer running this apprenticeship. Like, now I need to think about doing, getting, like, training in counseling and training in, um, like, I, like, I don't know, psychology to be able to work with people on, on that way. Because it's more than just, I'll teach you some code, I'll teach you some design. It's, all, it's about, like, helping them set up their lives and helping them set up, you know, for, uh, constructs for what they want to do. So I think there's a sweet spot for motivation where when people are not motivated enough, when they're like, oh, I want to get a, a, a job at Facebook. I'm like, all right, well, like, sure. No one you wants and- that enough to stop heroin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I feel like there's a sweet spot for how motivated someone can be to really see it through to the end. Um, you know, uh, my brother-in-law, I think he's a good example. He had like, he had that sweet spot of motivation. Um, it wasn't too much. It wasn't too little. And it like made him put his head down for nine months and, and like really work at it. And then I've had other people that were, that were like really excited the first week. And then I never heard from him again. And then I've had other people that get to the six month mark and then just can't like, they're just like, I can't finish it. Right. So like, that's a lot of investment for me and for them is to put in six months together to have somebody not finish. Those last two sound oddly familiar. Those seem like the things that people in our industry tend to do is like yeah. start something and be really excited about it and then stop and flag out. or they'll get really into it and spend a lot of time on it and then just stop out of nowhere. Yep. And like, and that's like a people thing. It has nothing to do with design or, or uh, people, you know, that's dieting, that's working out, that's yes. doing, trying to set any habit. And actually... I love that because that's exactly what we thought about when we started this podcast is we are like, we cannot start with one episode and expect the momentum <laughs> to carry us forward. So yep. we, we front loaded. We did eight. That's awesome. We, we tried to get eight. We got six. What are some of the common commonalities of people that don't make it through? Like, is, is there a trait or something that they're not learning or a concept that is a leading indicator of people that don't make it through? It's almost never, at least in, in the ones that, that, 
I've worked with, it's almost never the craft stuff. It's almost never like, oh, well, this person just couldn't figure out Sketch or like they just couldn't get JavaScript. Like it's, it, at least in everything that I can think of off the top of my head, it was never that. It's always something in their background, in their history, in their baggage that they carry that prevents them, that, that is a, a hurdle that's too tall for them to, to, to leap over right now. So as an example, one of, one of the, the apprentices that I had that just didn't make it through, he couldn't come in on time. Like he just, he couldn't get his schedule like, to line up well. And we tried all sorts of things. So I, I try to keep the apprenticeship open so that I could work with people on the things that they're they're weak at, right? So some people are work with are weak with time management. Some people are work, weak with craft. Some people are weak with um, with motivation. Some people are lazy. Like so, I try to keep it open enough that I could focus on those things. And so for this for this apprentice, he just couldn't get in on time and he couldn't schedule his time well. And so he would always run over on everything and he he'd never make a deadline. I'm like, dude, every project you're working on is late. Like, what can we do? So we, were, we tried Pomodoro technique. We tried all sorts of stuff. And he just, he just couldn't get that, that rigor around it. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, like the happy ending to the story is it's like he, so he, he stopped doing the apprenticeship, but he's now figured that out. And what it was tied to was his diet. Like he figured out that if he changed his diet, he could go to sleep better. He got better rest. He could wake up at the same time every morning. He'd get places early and on time. But he was just eating really poorly. Right. And that like those are the things that affect work that and those are things that we just never notice. Right. We always like, well, you got to be a good designer if you don't know your, you know, your grids. Like, you know, I got to more time and somebody to delivery burrito. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So, I mean, so like it's that kind of stuff that really prevents prevents people from doing it. Another one um, I think was was the lack of motivation. Like, I think what he wanted out of it was like the fame, like. Oh, I want to make a lot of money and travel around the world and speak and do all this stuff and be the Brian Lovin. Yeah, exactly. Like he had he had Brian Lovin syndrome, BLS, and he just you know he just couldn't get over it. I don't know whether to be like mildly offended. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Jesus! So it has to be a pure motivation. I think so. I I mean, I don't I don't know how to qualify that, and I don't feel qualified to qualify that either because I don't. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to call someone's intentions pure or not. I, I don't know. But I think that they have, to, they have to know it for themselves. And they have to demonstrate it like to themselves and, and to everybody else. And, so, and the ones that, that didn't make it through are the ones that I think couldn't get over those hurdles of, like, I can't get this time management thing down or I can't get this, um, this like, communication thing down. So, like, you know, I've had apprentices that are, like, really good at the craft stuff. But when I asked them to, to communicate about the design or write about it, can't can't do that and that's a that's a crucial part of it too so you know some of them get crippled by that fear so i think it's it's different for everybody but i would say the one theme that's emerging is that it's never about html it's never about javascript it's never about graphic design it's not capabilities no never what motivates you my family like i i don't know maybe this is blasphemous i i feel very weird and like intimidated and kind of like Imposter syndrome is not the right phrase for it, but like I feel like I'm cheating a bit when I hear people who talk about how much they love design and how passionate they are about it. I'm not very passionate about design. The Dan Petties of the world. Yeah, I mean, like, like, like there are people that just that love this thing and will do it all the time, and and I do in a in a different way, but I love design so much because it is a good means to an end for me. Like it it. Like I'm really fortunate to be able to provide for my family really well because of design. Like so I'm I'm very grateful and blessed for that. But if design stopped being the thing that let me provide for my family, I would like do something else in a heartbeat. Like there would be no I wouldn't You'd be start like, selling heater oil. I would absolutely start selling <laughs> like if that you know, if that did it, I would be there in a heartbeat. Sounds like a high margin business. <laughs> heater oil. <laughs> BLS. You wrote a post a matter of hours ago, which Bryn has not read. And I think you will disagree on it. I'm sorry, Ooh. Dan. Okay. I'm sorry. And oh, it's good. It's look at arm wrestle. It's about titles, and that you think they are. I think they're important. Why? Do you not, Bryn? I'm excited to see where you go with this. Okay. So the premise of the post is that I think titles are good for two things. I think one, they set up an expectation for your colleagues or your peers or your coworkers Agreed. on how to work with you, and the second thing is if you work with clients or customers, they set up an expectation for your clients or your customers on how they can see you. 
Um, so I, I feel like I see, you know, every other day someone is talking about on Twitter, like titles and inevitably it comes like there's some commenter that says, ah, titles don't matter. Just do what you love or, you know, something, something to that effect. Ah, they'll do what you love. Yeah. Yeah. Just make something that matters. If everyone was just like doing what they loved, no one would get off the couch. Exactly. Really? Exactly. That's not true. You can design from the couch. <laughs> <laughs> if everyone did what they loved, they'd all be designers. That sounds a lot like it helps with other people. And I heard a lot. Uh, one of the main examples was basically client work, right? Yeah. Yep. I think in startups, people tend to give themselves really exaggerated titles mm-hmm. in ways that don't help communicate what they do or are overly specific or are just, they seem to be more about ego. Yep. And that's where I think people say, don't worry about them. I think those are good points. I, the, I have an assumption in the article that I probably should have, I should have written this, which is that when I, when I say title, it's shorthand for saying accurate title, right? Like, <laughs> because an <laughs> inaccurate title is all of those things, right? It, it like inflates you. And, and one of the things that I, I like, as I was writing it, I didn't, I didn't know that I thought this until like I wrote it and I was like, oh, that's weird that I think this. I suggest that title should be given by clients or colleagues. You don't, you shouldn't ah, pick your own. I like that. Right. Cause like, cause if you pick your own, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as like designing a logo for yourself, right? You just can't do it. You just oh, can't man. brand yourself, right? It's so, like, it's impossible. My first job title as a designer was UX and brand architect. Mm. I think I was web designer and strategist. Something like I that. found out that the, the first main project I built still exists today, yesterday. It is David's Bridal's wedding invitation personalizer. And it still is almost exactly the same. They changed the fonts. <sighs> nice. Blows me away. Timeless design, Bryn. Nope. It's bad. <laughs> I actually know the people that are working on a David's Bridal project redesign, so I could tell them to keep it as it is or to change it. At- that would be rad. Invitations by David's Bridal is actually run separately. Oh, okay. Future historians will look back at the history of design and be like, this was the one piece that never changed. <laughs> this must be the essence yeah. of design. There was a the Rosetta w- Stone of, <laughs> of design. <laughs> There was a point where the project manager wanted the color palettes when you when you hovered over them to make chiming noises. And I fought that off successfully, and I was so happy about it. You didn't record the foley yourself. You didn't. Mm. Ding. Mm. <laughs> Man, that's good. That's a good Beltry opportunity. But I'm just like that's that's the strong example for me of like <laughs> titles are ridiculous. Like yeah. you can call yourself whatever you want, yep. and it's not useful. Yeah, I think it has to be. I think it has to be accurate. Like the way that I think about a a, a title is that it's like a shorthand way of setting an expectation and like i I guess i think a bit more like a book cover and the the chapters on the inside are the actions that you use to demonstrate why you have that title Mm so i was arguing with uh i'm not arguing but kind of discussing it with jeremy keith over twitter because he he completely disagrees as well humble brag jesus i mean he replied to me, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he, you know, he was like, I, I totally disagree. Like titles are, are smoke. They're just like, they're just an illusion. Um, and, and I think that titles that are an illusion are ones that don't reflect what you actually do. But I think if you, if everyone you talk to, you have to explain what you do at length. Like, I think a title is a good shorthand for that. I think the one that I give the most shit to is the one that I kind of, used the least appropriately which was ux designer Mm -hmm. Mm. and and the main argument is everyone who's working on a project should be thinking about ux yeah and i think a lot of people mean it's like researcher mixed with like wireframe designer like that's a weird thing i have unpopular opinions about that okay let's talk um i coach agencies a lot Mm -hmm. um so sometimes agencies or or uh, agency owners will call me and they'll say like, Hey, can you help whip our design team into shape? So I'll do, I'll, I'll help coach them. And almost always when I see, when I have UX departments and design departments and there's conflict, one of the things that I've suggested to them that has worked well is to get rid of UX altogether. Like everyone is designer. Correct. And completely agree. And that like stirs the pot a little bit and, and people get prickly about it. But then when they see that in action, it like it changes the game a little bit because it because it, I feel like when you separate the disciplines, when, you, when you're like, OK, you're just going to do the black and white design. Right. That's essentially what what a lot of people do. Like you do the you do it black and white and then you color it. 
there's something in the middle that gets that gets missed. So like you you separate them into silos, but then there's this gap in between them that all of the work falls through. Like all of the all of the soul, all of the the art direction, all of the stuff that makes people want to use the thing disappears because it's nobody's job anymore. So like mm-hmm. the more you abstract them, I feel like you 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 lose a part of the job. Like there's pieces that crumble off. And and I've also like and this is this is just my opinion, but I've seen it work well. I've also suggested that front-end developers change their titles to designer because it changes the way that people view work, mm-hmm. right? It changes like now you don't think of your work as engineering. Now you think of it as being part of creation, right? Hey, in a lot of with statistical basis is what we call a fact. So <laughs> fair. What is design? Is it everything now? Oh boy. Are we good? No. <laughs> well, so what you just mentioned is actually one of the, the scariest things that is I've seen about titles. And that's when people limit the work that they're willing to do because of the title Mm -hmm. or not even that they're willing to do the work that they want to do. I've had people come to me and say, I'm a UX designer, but I really want to be a product designer. I'm like, dude, you're basically doing it. It's the same. (laughs) Just call your, like literally just call yourself designer and embrace the responsibilities that come with all of the the disciplines, including whatever you want to call user experience, visual interaction, like just do it. The concept of removing ideation from these processes like it's not the any good developer is like doing this ideation process but it seems like in the the words we use to describe it it removes it from the process and that's ridiculous yep totally i think everybody should be coming up with the idea of what you're making and then everyone can attack it from their specific perspectives and disciplines and and like if you if you get too i mean and, th- and this is a good argument against titles if you're too specific in your titles then you basically you you basically give people permission to be hands off about something like mm-hmm. oh not my job i'm a ux it strategist becomes, like i don't touch photoshop you know it becomes consensus versus individual action yep exactly which individual action like if someone goes and hacks on something it, more often than not it gets built yep that's like, true that's the way to go yep um one of the things that I that I often like tell all the designers that I coach is that like we have formalized our discipline so much that no one knows how to be scrappy anymore. Like I like this. Okay, so this is totally you know OG. I I built sites and tables, but like when I learned web design, there wasn't a such thing as like a back end developer or like a front end developer. It was like you you made the website. Like that meant you like designed you, full it. Stacked in you, mall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's what everybody was, right? Like. You designed it, you animated it, you flashed it, you um, you wrote the PHP, you wrote the Perl script. Like, I remember writing CGI scripts. I don't even know what I was doing, but I was, like, copying and pasting stuff from the internet and making forms work. And, like, I have no idea what I was doing, but I made all of it. I made all the whole thing. And, like, when people were building websites then, they were doing that. Now, there's definitely good to that sort of deep specialty in, like, being really good at back end or being really good at front end or really good at, at design. Um, so, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that that's a bad thing. Um, I think we should have that. But I think we lost the scrappiness of what made those things like fun to do in the first place. Like we formalize it too much. That's the other side of titles is like when it gets so formal, then, then you lose some of that. So I think there is a sweet spot of, of what titles describe you can do and what you can't do. But I, I find that they're, I guess, they're most valuable in how you relate to other people as opposed to what they can do for you. I buy that with the qualifiers that you've addressed. It has to be accurate. Yeah. Accurately described. Hmm. Okay. And, and I think I think it stands a chance of being more accurate when somebody else gives you the title. There you go. It strips the ego out. Yeah. We're out of time. Oh. Thank you for coming. For, for round one. All right. For Honestly, this was round one. We got to do another one. Great. Uh, Only one? Yeah, you get one more shot. <laughs> Thank you, you for shot. flying Can't out. Was your chance to blow? All right, mom's spaghetti. That's all I've got. Knees weak. Uh, you flew out from Philly just to see us. We know it. We sure appreciate did. it. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? Um, what can I plug? You oh, book. I I listened to a really good podcast lately. Um, I'm just gonna plug stuff that I like. Is that cool? cool. Yes. I listened to a good podcast lately called The Message. Um, it's by Panoply and sponsored by GE. Um, it's eight episodes, 10 minutes each, and it's sci-fi. Uh, I won't spoil it, um, but it was very entertaining. So that could be cool for anybody that that likes listening to podcasts. 
And <laughs> uh, basically everyone that will ever hear those words come out of your mouth. Yeah, all right. I would hope so. I, yeah, I'd hope so too. I can't conceive of how somebody would accidentally listen to that. <laughs> and get this far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, shit, what is this? I guess I'll stick around for an hour. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's it. I'll, that That's good. That's my latest. You are at Daniel Mall on Twitter. I am. DanielMall.com. DanielMall.com. Where you write superfriend.ly. Yep. You guys got it. Links cool. links in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, man. That was episode 90. Thanks so much to Dan for coming out to the West Coast and hanging out with us. We're so stoked we finally got it to work. We tried to do it at Epic Currents. We tried to do it in New York. Finally made it happen the day before Brian leaves for India. Woo! We hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, let us know on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. And if you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. We've got five shows on the network, all for designers and developers, helping you level up. And of course, join our Slack team. We're at spec.fm slash Slack. Over 2,500 people are in there talking about the latest and greatest in tools and news for designers and developers. Before we go, huge thank you once again to our sponsors that made this episode possible. First up, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way that you want. They handle all the syncing, all the backend, all the file management, all the storage, all that stuff so that you don't have to worry about it and you can work on any file with any device from wherever you are and with anyone you choose so you can just keep creating cool stuff. Uh, You can check them out and get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. Of course, thank you to Icon Finder for sponsoring the show. They're the largest source of premium icons on the web. Over 700,000 icons in their library and you can get them all for just nine bucks a month with Icon Finder Pro. But if you tell them that we sent you using the promo code design details, that's going to get you 50% off your first month. Huge thank you once again to IconFinder.com. We'll see you on Wednesday with our producer, Sarah. And we're going to do some of our favorite clips from 2015. Whoop, whoop.